0: I so appreciate the opportunity to speak with award-winning writer Brian Alexander, uh, who is well-known for a powerful and important book from several years ago called Glass House, The 1% Economy and the Shattering of the All-American Town. Uh, You can probably gather from the title the the kind of uh, difficult realities that Brian Alexander uh, explored in that best-selling book. And his newest book, uh, in somewhat the same vein, is uh, every bit as powerful and in some ways uh, even more far-reaching. The book is titled The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town. The small American town in question is Bryan, Ohio. And uh, Bryan, Ohio has its, of course, own unique story, but it is a story that resonates deeply with all kinds of other struggling small towns across the country. Uh, What makes this particular story uh, especially interesting is that Brian Alexander is choosing to look at the town of Bryan, Ohio through the lens of the hospital that stands in its midst, a community hospital struggling to survive, struggling to remain independent. And uh, the story of that... Uh, is, in, in some respects, inspiring and, and heartbreaking all at once. Uh, it's an amazing book. And uh, perhaps you've also read Brian Alexander's uh, work for uh, The Atlantic, where he is a contributing writer. His work has shown up in The New York Times, Esquire, and many other places as well. This book, published by St. Martin's Press, is again titled The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town. Brian Alexander, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Well, thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. I really appreciate it. And I want to get a plug in right away for the Wisconsin Book Festival. Um, I'll be there uh, virtually, unfortunately virtually, but still there on March 30th.
0: Very good. Tell us how you were drawn to the story of this particular hospital in the small town of, of Bryan, Ohio. Do you have ties to the area or in some other way? Did you find yourself drawn to this particular story? I
1: I don't have any particular ties to this area, but I did do a story uh, for The Atlantic on community hospitals, especially small town community hospitals. And that story really came about uh, when I was reporting my previous book that you mentioned, Glass House, And in uh, Lancaster, Ohio, which is where that book is set, the hospital is the largest employer. And I came to learn that this was true in many places uh, all over the United States, that in some of these smaller towns, and even sometimes mid-sized towns, hospitals are the largest employer. But I also learned that hundreds of these hospitals were at risk of closing uh, for a variety of reasons. And when you have um, the new kind of economic engine of your town being a hospital and it closes, well, then what happens to your town? So I interviewed uh, a guy by the name of Phil Ennen, was the CEO of the hospital in Bryan, Ohio. We had a nice chat. Uh, the story came out, and Phil called me up after the story appeared and said, you know, you actually need to come to our town and see our hospital and see how we are trying to survive. So I did. And over the course of four days, I realized that this was an opportunity not only to examine one hospital in one town, but by doing that, I was could be able to address some issues that I saw all over America and what I refer to as an American sickness.
0: Mm. We'll get to some of the specifics of that story in, in just a moment. And, and I'm especially interested to find out how you went about Telling this story, first I want to ask you actually about the first chapter of the book, which is titled "A Ready Haven of Refuge," and in this chapter you take what I did not really expect to find uh, in this particular book—quite a thorough telling of sort of the history of the American hospital and, in particular, the way in which American hospitals have sprung up in in various communities across the Midwest. Um, it's, it's it's quite interesting, but again, I was kind of taken aback. I think in a lot of books like this, uh, there might be a, a, a glancing look at the historical context, but you take a lot of time with it and are really actually quite thorough. Why did you think that was so important to tell so much of the history of hospitals in America?
1: Greg, I'm so pleased you, you asked about that chapter. I thought that was an important one to include. Um, I thought it was important because we have been arguing about health care in our country for over a century, and in some ways, the argument has never changed, and that is, how much responsibility does society at large have to provide medical care for each one of us as individuals? Um, we've gone back and forth over over this uh, ever since the turn uh, to from the 18th to the uh, f- sorry from the 19th to the 20th century. Um, the hospital movement itself uh, exemplified this. The uh, United States of America got a big shock with the Spanish flu epidemic of 1917-18-19. Uh, Um, And it's one that we are discussing a lot now that we're in the middle of the COVID pandemic. And that led to a great rush of construction of hospitals. And there were models for um, who was going to build the hospital. In some cases, towns got together and collected tax dollars, and they built their own hospital. In some cases, it was religious orders of nuns. And in some cases, it was private enterprise. Chiefly doctors would build their own little hospital. And all three of those sort of strains have been competing against each other ever since. And the system grew up more or less by accident. It was never a plan. We've never really had a plan in this country. And I thought readers needed to know that background in order to comprehend what was going to happen in the rest of the book.
0: Hmm. One moment in that chapter that I found quite interesting is when is when you talk of the rise of the American hospital and hospitals taking on the same role as libraries, country clubs, schools, and parks as keystones of a successful community. I guess on probably some level I already knew that and understood that to a very limited extent, but I don't think until I read those words had it ever really occurred to me uh, what a hospital means. To a a community of any size, but I suppose especially to a relatively small community. And that also helps us think about what it would be like for such a community to lose a hospital.
1: That's right. Uh, You know, when uh, we were thinking about being a progressive city, and I don't mean that in the current political sense, I just mean we're a city on the move. Uh, We have a variety of amenities, and so you should build your factory in our town. We have maybe a university, or we have uh, good parks, swimming pools, uh, a country club, uh, uh, a library. A hospital was one of those keystones of advertising to the rest of the world that, hey, we are modern. And towns had their identities oftentimes in their hospital. I mean, think about it. Um, My hometown is Lancaster, Ohio, which is where Glass House uh, was set every kid in town is born in the hospital. Everybody has an identity at that hospital. And as I said, oftentimes a hospital is one of the larger employers in these sorts of towns. So it really became a point of pride to have a hospital in your town. Hmm.
0: Another line in this chapter leapt out at me, and I think uh, it does speak to the story that you tell of the hospital in Bryan, Ohio. And... uh, uh, It is these simple words. It was one thing to build hospitals, but quite another to pay for them. Can you uh, untie those intriguing words for us, please?
1: Well, you know, as I say, there's always been this debate. Should medical care be free? Should it be tax-supported? Should you pay? How much should you pay? Who should pay? So at the beginning, there was kind of an ad hoc philosophy that said, if you can afford to pay, well, then you should pay. If you could not afford to pay, if you were down and out, uh, then doctors or hospitals should provide those services just as a charity to you. There was great debate in the country about whether or not uh, medicine and commerce should interact. Um, We really still haven't settled that, although uh, medicine now is commerce. Um, But at the time, people were uncertain of how to proceed. But doctors had to get paid. Nurses had to get paid. And as technology was invented that greatly improved medical care, somebody had to pay for that and those machines. As drugs became um, more and more effective, somebody had to pay to create drugs. So how do we go about doing that? That's what the um, philosophy of uh, how much of this is a business, how much of this is a mission. And that's the thing we've never settled on in this country.
0: Right. And of course, that question plays out uh, in very powerful and complicated ways in this story that you tell um, in, in Bryan, Ohio. One other overarching question, and this actually comes From uh, much later in the book I don't think it's quite yet the epilogue but towards the very end uh, I guess it's in chapter 9 you write this in describing America's healthcare system uh, what America has is a jumble of ill-fitting building blocks the doctoring industry the hospital industry the insurance industry the drug industry the device industry They'd all been able to tweak and sand the corners of proposed solutions to benefit themselves. Lobbyists and political action committees spent millions to do so until the edifice of American medicine looked like a fragile tower of Babel, rotten with holes and the crooked passageways where money was hidden. There was so much money, trillions, and there was so much incentive to embrace the insanity, because the insanity was so lucrative. I'm curious if you knew all of that before you started to investigate the story of the hospital in, in Bryan, Ohio. Or, I mean, was this your understanding of America's healthcare system, or did you come to see it this way as you investigated this story more closely?
1: I did – let's say that I had an inkling, but the extent to which and the power of that idea had not yet come to me. Um, It it really came to me by talking to people who are on the front lines, actual doctors and nurses, who would look me in the eye and say, this is crazy. The way this works is crazy. Uh, And I don't think most Americans realize – how our, um, the way we do medical care in this country, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to call it a system, as one character in the book <clears throat> says to me, we don't have a system. Um, but I don't think Americans realize how accidental it all is. Take the issue of health insurance. Really, health insurance, as we know it today, didn't really much exist until World War II, when um, the government... Uh, froze wages in an effort to fight the war um, employers had a more difficult time uh, attracting talent so they said look since we can't raise wages we're going to provide some benefits and here is going to be a hospitalization benefit was often what they used to call it back then that sort of created the modern insurance health insurance industry as we know it nobody planned for that it just sort of happened And as you had one Band-Aid on top of another Band-Aid on top of another Band-Aid grow over the decades, the people who became expert at manipulating and controlling this crazy funhouse, they became the richest people uh, affiliated with medical care. And that's why lobbying on the part of all these various industries is so powerful and why most people turn off Um, Look, I I couldn't tell you half of what is in my health insurance policy. I couldn't tell you half of what it covers. It's incredibly complicated. And that complexity is built in because that you then rely on experts. And the experts have the keys to where the money is located. Mm. The power of that and the the, uh, pervasiveness of that had not fully sunk in until I started reporting this book.
0: For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Brian Alexander. We are talking about his newest book, which is called The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town. The small American town in question is Brian, Ohio, uh, a, a small Midwestern town like so many small Midwestern towns that has fallen upon very, very hard times. And uh, Brian Alexander's book uh, is an examination that uh, both takes in kind of the larger canvas of of our national uh, economic and sociological sist- uh, situation. Uh, it looks at this town, and it also looks at the lives of many of the people who live and work in and around uh, Bryan, Ohio, and chronicles many of their struggles in a deeply personal way. To write a book like that, uh, you've already touched on the fact that you actually went to Bryan, uh, Ohio at the uh, invitation of, uh, of the head of the hospital. Uh, tell us a little more about the nuts and bolts of, of what happened when you first came to Bryan and then uh, what you did from there in terms of getting to know this town and its citizens and the situation there.
1: Well, um, Phil Ennan, the CEO of the hospital, and I, at one point, we sat down and I said, look, I'd, I'd like to do this. Uh, Phil, from his standpoint, believed that uh, the situation of rural and community hospitals was not well told and, and not told often enough. Um, they really depend on politics in order to stay open, and he felt that uh, there could be some benefit if I told a story. So we talked. I said, look, I'm a reporter. I'm not on anybody's particular side here. I'm going to tell the truth and the chips will fall where they may. And I need to have access. I need to get inside your hospital. Um, This is actually quite rare. Hospitals are very reluctant to let journalists anywhere uh, inside their doors uh, unless they have some great news to broadcast um, but Phil, to his great credit, said, okay, you're in, um, do it, and, and I'll, I'll abide by that. So um, I essentially moved to Bryan, Ohio. Uh, I uh, rented a, a small house uh, and um, bought an old used uh, Hyundai Accent for, with 140,000 miles on it and spent um, most of a year, almost all of a year, uh, living in Bryan, and then I went back for subsequent visits after that. After that point, point. and the idea was just to be there. I found, especially when you're reporting on on a smaller place, people need to see you. They need to see you in in the tavern. They need to see you in the cafe. They need to see you at city council meetings. You need to become a fabric, uh, part of the fabric of the of the town, and then people open up to you because they know you're just not going to parachute in. And tell some sort of stereotypical story. You really want to get to know them, and and I did, and I and I genuinely care about them. A lot of great people there. Hmm. Uh,
0: what did you do when it comes to matters of, for instance, actual people, their real names, details about their lives, and 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 so on, and uh, what kind of uh, maybe vexing choices did you face as the author? in terms of exactly how personal and revelatory to make this book?
1: Well, you know, my goal is to make it as personal and revelatory as possible, especially when you're dealing with something as complicated as uh, medical care. I did not want this to be a wonky policy book. I wanted this to be about human beings and tell a very human-level story. And so I really needed um, their candor. And I, I said, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. I'm writing a book. I would like to just hang out with you. Uh, and fortunately, there were a few people who said, okay, that's all right. Um, follow me around. And so I just spent time with them. I spent time with my friend uh, Keith Sweihart, who's a major character in the book, watching auto racing, uh, going to his medical appointments with him. I spent time with Valerie Marino, um, a, a middle-aged mother uh, and wife who lives in Bryan, uh, I spent time with um, some patients. Now, when you're dealing with patients in a hospital setting, uh, there are, there's this rule called HIPAA, which is a privacy act. And so there are uh, occasions in the book where I have to use a made-up name for somebody in order to not violate the HIPAA regulation. Uh, but generally, people were really quite willing to tell me their stories, I have found that especially uh, dealing with towns in the Midwest, they feel neglected, and rightly so, in my opinion. And they feel like they've got something to say, and they want to say it. Uh, And I'm happy to be the conduit to um, get them out there to the rest of the country.
0: I'm just curious, how much resistance did you meet? Uh, in terms of of wanting to get the to know the people of Bryan, Ohio, were there a I mean, you just said there were a few people who were willing to you know allow me to really get to know them, uh, and we could we could interpret those words a, a couple of different ways. But does that mean, in a sense, that there were many more people who were wary of your interest in them and and unwilling to open up to you, or or by and large, were were most people at least relatively open? Uh, to allowing you into their lives, as it were?
1: Most people were relatively open. Uh, I, I would say that it's fair to say some were wary. You know, like, why are you doing this? Um, they couldn't sometimes believe that somebody would come to their town and spend so much time. And it, but the longer I was there, the more open people became. There were um, a few people who would provide some information, Uh, I'm thinking now of some hospital employees, but who were reluctant to sit down for formal interviews. They were a little bit suspicious. I mean, we can't forget that we have just spent um, the last four years uh, having the president of the United States vilify members of the press and uh, try to instill distrust in the motivations and the accuracy of the media and as a, a reporter author people viewed me as one of those members and so it took a little time in some cases and some people never fully came around but in general people were really quite uh, willing and open
0: this hospital in the middle of of brian is of course the heart of the matter but before we get to that I think we need you to briefly summarize, in a sense, the decline of Bryan. Tell us first what Bryan, Ohio, once was, and then uh, at what point in time its fortunes uh, began to uh, deteriorate so alarmingly.
1: Well, this will be familiar to um, people all over Wisconsin and all over the industrial Midwest. Uh, Bryan, Ohio, was quite a prosperous little place uh, let's just pick you know, the 1960s, for example, the, the post-war era. It had a very large employer called ARO, A-R-O, that made hydraulic uh, pumps, uh, fluid-moving pumps and so on. Um, so that was in auto garages for grease guns. It was in airplanes. It was NASA. It was a contractor for NASA. Um, they employed uh, over 2,000 people in a town of only about 8,500 people. So you can imagine the impact that Arrow had on the town. But in addition, for over 100 years, they had the Spangler Candy Company, and people are probably familiar with Dum Dum lollipops. That's made in Bryan, Ohio, by Spangler. Uh, They also make circus peanuts and and, um, a variety of other treats for kids. They've been there for like 105, 106 years. Uh, And then there was Ohio Art. And, of course, Ohio Art's most famous product, anybody who's, who's my late middle age age will remember the Etch-A-Sketch. That came from Bryan, Ohio. Uh, there's also a heating and cooling company there, Bard Heating and Cooling. Up in the village of Montpelier in, um, in, Mont- in Williams County, where Bryan, Ohio is set, uh, over 300 people worked at the Mohawk Tools Plant. They made specialized cutting tools. And over time... Uh, the county became somewhat dependent on the auto industry. So a lot of tier two manufacturers doing injection molding and metal stamping, that sort of thing. Um, Then in uh, around 1980, uh, with the dawn of the Reagan era and the mergers and acquisitions um, craze, and what I refer to as the financialization of the American economy, Um, There were buyouts, mergers, consolidation. Arrow ended up shutting down and being eventually ended up in the hands of a big company called Ingersoll Rand, and all the jobs were moved to a right-to-work state. Um, Private equity got involved in some cases. Uh, Mohawk Tools is now based in Shannon, Ireland. There are no Mohawk Tools anymore uh, in Montpelier. So this was a typical pattern that we've seen all over the the industrial Midwest post-1980. And so this happened gradually. And then at the dawn of the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, it sort of collapsed all at once. In other words, there had been this underneath erosion all this time, and then everything shut down. When the Great Recession happened, unemployment in Williams County was over 17%, and everything just stopped. People still to this day refer to the Great Recession almost the way my parents referred to December 7, 1941 in Pearl Harbor.
0: Your book, of course, uh, is uh, looking at Brian, Ohio, in the aftermath of all of that economic devastation. And you take us into the lives of, of many people uh, who, one of them you describe as one dead car battery away from being broke. I mean, people, uh, in many cases, uh, very much struggling from paycheck to paycheck. Uh, one acronym I, I uh, uh, see more than once is... Alice, A L I C E, explain what this describes and this harsh reality in the lives of so many people in a place like Bryan, Ohio.
1: So that means asset limited, income constrained, employed. In other words, people are working, uh, and yet in uh, often full time jobs, uh, and yet they're barely have hovering above the poverty line. So uh, typical Alice household is just at about 200 percent above the poverty level. Uh, Many people, uh, I forget the actual statistic I use in the book, but it's something like 30 percent of people in the county qualify as Alice. Um, And what this means is they're, they're, they're making it, but they're barely making it. There's not a dime left over, and there's especially not a lot of money left over for uh, medical care or regular doctor's appointments. Right. Um, but in addition, this also leads to a sense of, of despair, a sense of I'm not getting anywhere and I'm working hard. There are people in this county, as there are people all over the United States, who are working full-time jobs, 40 hours or more a week, that qualify for Medicaid. Um, wages that used to be $25 an hour or more, at companies like Aero, uh, those people are now working in a distribution center for 14 1450 an hour. So the income of people has actually declined. And as I point out in the book, this is also a health crisis, this inequality in America, this idea that people can work hard and still stay stagnant and barely make it. Uh, this is a health crisis both mental health and physical health
0: right at one point in describing this uh you 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 use the term insecurity to describe the reality of of so many americans and um, you describe it this way anything could happen at any time there was nothing you could count on and the insecurity bred by that knowledge had now been indelibly etched into the minds and often the bodies of every working person for the past 40 years. And I think what you're saying in your book, and which you explore in some depth, is the harsh reality of that in terms of the consequences for people's health, the health of everyday Americans being deeply affected by this kind of chronic insecurity and anxiety.
1: Exactly. You know, an interesting uh, statistic that I ran across is that research shows that really only about 15 to 20 percent of our health outcomes is a direct result of medical care. All the rest, something like 80 percent, is really what is referred to as social determinants of health. Where you live, how much money you make, what kind of education you have. Uh, The starkest example and the the statistic that really drove me to uh, convince me to write this book was that Bryan, Ohio, small town, 8,500 people, uh, 98% white, so it's very homogenous, is divided by Main Street. The U.S. Census Bureau divides the town into two different census tracts on one side of Main Street people die eight years sooner of cancer than people living on the other side of Main Street. I mean, that's amazing to me. Um, in this country, there's a 13-year gap in life expectancy between rich and poor. Uh, money determines our health.
0: And I, I, I think the, the other harsh reality you draw into this story is that when a catastrophic health event happens to somebody depending on whether or not they have insurance or whether or not their insurance is anywhere, anyway, close to adequate for what they are experiencing, this can change uh, a difficult situation uh, into a disastrous one. Uh, for instance, when you are talking about uh, whether or not a flight to life becomes necessary, uh, what a patient then might incur with those costs, tens of thousands of dollars, will be what you call life-altering debt. I mean, that that ends up changing every aspect of their life and probably uh, in, in irreversible ways in many cases.
1: Absolutely. Many Americans, I think, uh, who have not experienced it don't realize how many of us, even those of us who feel pretty secure, we're walking on a balance beam. And it takes one diagnosis to shove us off that balance beam and create a cascade of events. The leading cause of bankruptcy in this country is medical care. Uh, I spoke to a young woman, for example, in Bryan, Ohio. Uh, She and her husband were young. They had bought a house. They were starting on their life path the way we like to think. Uh, And she had a diagnosis. They ended up having to sell their house and buy a trailer and live in a trailer. And they're both working. Uh, So many, many people are in this position. We tend to want to think it's somehow irresponsible people or people who have engaged in personal sin. It's a personal failing. No, it's everybody. Everybody is at
0: risk of this. We're speaking with Brian Alexander about his book, The hospital, life, death, and dollars in a small American town. The small American town in question is Bryan, Ohio. The hospital, in your title, is a really interesting hospital. At one point, you call it a scrappy hybrid. Explain why you describe the hospital in Bryan, Ohio as a scrappy hybrid.
1: Well, uh through oftentimes through hook and by crook and i don't mean that necessarily in a negative way and i don't mean literally by crook i just mean by some rule bending and some political maneuvering and so on the hospital has been able to uh, attract doctors to open up some specialty clinics it's been able to actually grow that was a deliberate strategy By both um, a fellow by the name of Rusty Brunicardi, who was a longtime CEO, and then his successor, Phil Ennen, continued that. The idea was, we need to keep our people local. We need to stop them from wanting to go to Toledo, which is 50 miles to the east, or Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is 50 miles to the west, for this expensive care. We want to be able to provide that to them here. And so they they did and they actually succeeded. It was not easy. Uh, the hospital lost money every single month in 2018. Uh, their funds were being depleted. Uh, eventually, uh, as uh, readers will read, um, you know the hospital goes through some changes. Um, but they were they were a, like a bantamweight fighter going up against a heavyweight because they are targeted by these big health systems that really wanna dominate local uh, market areas. Uh, And this is what's happening all over the US. The big health systems wanna dominate so that they have pricing power. And this is a way that the medical care industry has become a big business.
0: One of the really interesting realities uh, that your book points to, it's, it's one of many fascinating insights that you give us into how probably many hospitals function, and in particular this hospital in Bryan, Ohio, is the way in which nurses and doctors have to make all kinds of decisions and choices on a daily basis in that sort of hook-by-crook way that you uh, uh, talked about, the, the hospital just surviving. You write this at one point, With so many people in poverty or just above poverty, nurses and doctors often held meetings about how to evade strict interpretations of payment schemes so they could care for their patients. Explain the kind of thing that we're talking about. I mean, what kinds of things would nurses and doctors, in a sense, feel constrained, be forced to do, compelled to do uh, in order to provide the care that their patients so desperately needed but, in a sense, could not afford?
1: Well, here's an example. So I sat in on a meeting uh, where uh, doctors and nurses were discussing a particular older woman uh, who was in there with um, uh, lung disease. And uh, one of the metrics that insurance companies use to decide whether or not they're going to continue to pay for a hospital stay is whether or not a patient can walk 50 feet unassisted. The doctors and nurses felt strongly that this woman still needed to be in the hospital. Uh, However, uh, it looked like maybe she could walk 50 feet. They thought that was a meaningless metric. So they tried to figure out ways that they could um, fudge that report and tell the insurance company that indeed the patient could not walk 50 feet. Uh, Doctors and nurses often go hunting for packets of sample drugs so that they can give to people. Um, oftentimes, for example, people need a wheelchair ramp, but there's no wheelchair ramp. So it, while a wheelchair ramp is being constructed for them, uh, often by volunteers, uh, they'll try to figure out a way to uh, keep them in the hospital so that they can get the care they need before they can be sent home. Um, this kind of decision-making happens every single day in hospitals all around the country, also in doctor's offices, for that matter, Um, that I think you need this care. I think you need this drug. Uh, The insurance company isn't going to pay for it. We need to figure out how to make sure you get what you need. And in a sense, that turns every doctor, every nurse, every administrator, sort of turns them into kind of a grifter. Um, Now, they're trying to grift for the good, but they're being forced to work around all these rules. Hmm.
0: In this very same chapter uh, from which I just read this paragraph, uh, you also talk about uh, the whole matter of uncompensated care expense uh, in which uh, a hospital like this one in Bryan, Ohio, has to sort of take it on the chin. Um, how r- rampant and serious an issue is this and is it an issue everywhere or especially uh, in a place like Bryan, Ohio and in a hospital like this one?
1: It's an issue everywhere and uh, especially in uh, community hospitals like the one in Bryan, but I also want to emphasize how much in common uh, a hospital in a small town uh, like Bryan has with an inner city safety net hospital. In other words, uh, a hospital that serves the poor and working class in an inner city, often depending for revenue on Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, they face exactly the same problems, um, and, and it is rampant. Uh, you, you know, We have a system in the country that does not reward uh, people for keeping you well. It rewards um, hospitals for when they treat an illness that's already there. Um, this is really common all over the place.
0: This, uh, this chapter also mentions a, a very harsh reality, namely that, uh, in this particular part of Ohio and in nearby Indiana, there are very few mental health beds available. So often the, 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 the nurses at this hospital in, in Bryan, Ohio are dealing with mental health cases and they are not psychiatrists or counselors, And uh, they are having to deal with these patients and these really challenging situations.
1: Again, true all over the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, on one level, of course, this book is about this particular hospital and it's about uh, Bryan, Ohio. But really, they are avatars for what's happening all over the country. Uh, Mental health is a crisis situation all over the United States at the moment. And this is what I refer to as the American Sickness. Why is this the case? Um, and this is why I say that the American economy, and not just the economy, uh, we have a variety of pathologies occurring in our country right now, and one of the symptoms of that pathology or one of the fallouts of that pathology is a dramatic rise in mental illness and, and sadly, a 30% increase in suicides in our country. Mm.
0: We have not yet really explored too much, and we won't have time to do it uh, extensively, but your book, of course, takes on the whole matter of this hospital uh, and its struggle to survive, and uh, its struggle to remain independent and also solvent uh, uh, in in the midst of a very, very difficult uh, economic uh, downturn and, and, and very challenging economic environment. At one point, you uh, are describing the process by which potentially consultants might come in to offer various solutions, and and uh, you seem to be present, or at least are describing in great detail, some very tense meetings uh, from various players, uh, including administrators and board members and and so on who have very different ideas about a a positive path forward for the hospital. And at one point you say this, all of them were good people. All of them were good at their jobs. And all of them wanted CHWC, that's the hospital, to thrive. But each had a different idea of how to make it thrive because they were all trying to figure out how to play the economic game of American medicine. I'm really so, I'm so glad that you make that point because I think it's important to know that even smart and good people sitting around the table who all, in a sense, want the same thing can nevertheless be in great tension and conflict with one another over different ideas about what the solution to this terrible problem is.
1: That's right. And, and one of the backstories here that I explore in the book is this massive consolidation of health care. Um, CHWC, the hospital, is actually in the, in the gun sites of a giant health system called ProMedica in Toledo and another one called Parkview in Fort Wayne, Indiana. They would both like to take over that hospital. Um, the hospital wants to remain independent, however. Um, and I go into some detail about what it means when these big health systems, these giant businesses now, Come and take over community hospitals. You know, Prometica is officially a nonprofit, just like, a, you know, any big health system in Wisconsin or anywhere else. They're, they're often officially nonprofit. But I use quotation marks around that because they're often also sitting on top of billions of dollars of stored up revenue. And they often have for-profit businesses. So this idea that, you know, the kindly doctor um, is treating you, um, and that may be, in fact, the case. But from the provider standpoint, they're surrounded now by a full industry. CHWC is one of those holdouts. They want to be a community asset and a community service. And, but they have to fight the business game. They have to figure out how to navigate the business. And so you end up having uh, the C-suite, the top executives, sitting around that table having arguments about how they should proceed to do that while still fulfilling the mission of the hospital. And this conflict between business and mission pervades the book as it pervades all of American health.
0: Right. And um, we're going to leave it to our listeners to uh, find out more about, uh, I was going to say, kind of the final fate of the hospital. It's not that so much, but uh, the situation with the hospital as you finally let go of this story and and share it. uh, in your really, really important uh, book. Let's finish by asking you, uh, now that you have explored this particular story uh, with such depth over the course of, of 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 time, what you would say to those who uh, can shape public policy when it comes to our health care system. Uh, uh, not that you have... The magic answer that solves all of this, but maybe how do you want us to proceed from here, and in particularly uh, those who shape policy? How should we think about this issue? How do we need to tackle it in a meaningful way?
1: Well, I think we need to face the fact that the current way we're doing things is not sustainable. It is going to be a very painful transition, and I don't think anybody should hide that. But ultimately, we do need some sort of national health plan. Maybe it's Medicare for all. Maybe it's some variation of that. But something like that has to happen because we are not well served by what we've got right now. We pay far more money than anybody else pays around the world for our health care. And compared to our peer countries, we have lousy outcomes. Our life expectancy is actually declining. Our health is actually declining. It's not just because of medical care. It's also because of these socioeconomic forces that I uh, talk about in the book that affects people. But health care is a part of that. We need to just admit that despite our brilliant technology, great science in the United States, we are not providing great access to great care to people And we need to do something about that, as painful as it may be.
0: The book, again, is titled The Hospital, Life, Death, and Dollars in a Small American Town, published by St. Martin's Press and the author, Brian Alexander. Brian Alexander, I commend you on a job very, very well done. This is a complex, difficult story, and it's not easy to tell that story well. I think you have done that in this great book. I hope many people will seek it out and think deeply about what you share here. And thank you for being part of The Morning Show.
1: Greg, thank you so much. I really appreciate this interview. It was, uh, it was enlightening for myself, too.